Hey. Hey, Chris. Good times are rolling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of adventure, sports, culture, uh, tech, entrepreneurship. Uh, is that a category? Entrepreneurs? Maybe. We'll just say entrepreneur. We talk to entrepreneurs. Um, we're trying to understand the hurdles that they overcome and, and the tips and the tricks that, that made them better. And today we got a really, really good example of that. His name is Tom Bilyeu, and he is the founder of Quest Nutrition, a billion-dollar company, kind of a billion-dollar startup uh, that uh, promotes um, basically promotes healthy lifestyles through uh, nutrition bars that are completely free of sugar. Um, he since left that to start something called Impact Theory, uh, which seeks to empower folks uh, to start mission-based businesses and, and um, you know, think about folks like Blake McCoskey of Tom's, um, other entrepreneurs in, in that vein. He also hosts a very successful podcast where he talks to entrepreneurs, but also people like Wyclef Jean and uh, Russell Simmons, um, and really aims to unlock the, the secrets to their success. But, you know, he's a pretty good case study himself. Uh, he's quite an inspirational guy. He's got a very specific approach to life, and strangely enough, it's all rooted in uh, laziness. All right, let's start the show. First, I want to begin with your... What time did you wake up this morning, by the way? Man, last night was uh, was a very weird night. So the first time I woke up was 1 a.m. Uh, okay. So there's something going on in L.A. right now with the wind. Yes. And my allergies are off the charts right now. <laughs> okay. So I woke up like every hour um, all night long. It was absolutely atrocious. But normally I wake up somewhere between 2.30 and 4.30 a.m. Really? <laughs> every day. And you don't... You know, slip yourself some melatonin to try and go back to sleep or anything? <laughs> if or? I get less than five hours, I do. I don't okay. take melatonin, but I try right. to fall back asleep. So I have a rule that if I've gotten five hours or more, I have 10 minutes to get out of bed. Um, so, And that just comes down to when do I wake up. So I never set an alarm. That's I haven't set an really? alarm in over 10 years. I mean, like as an emergency. Sure, sure. yeah. yeah. Um, but no, don't set an alarm. I sleep between five and six hours a night, and I have 10 minutes to get out of bed. That's it. And then what happens when you get out of bed? I head straight to the gym. So we have a gym in our house. I hate working out, and I know that's probably sacrilege yeah. uh, in a place that has such elite athletes. But, um, yeah, I don't enjoy working out, but I think it's absolutely critical. So yeah. that is the first thing I do. And and what is it? Is it like cardio? Is it is it stuff to get you kind of up and awake? Or no, no, I don't I don't think of it like that at all. So um, for me, it really is purely about optimizing the body and the mind. And I think if I could optimize my mind without doing anything to my body, I probably would. Yeah. But I've just found that there really is a connection between the body and the mind, and that the harder I work out my body, the more cognitively um, I'm ready to attack the day. And yeah. not from like oh I feel fatigued if I don't actually feel more tired when I work out than when I don't. Yeah. Um, but there really is just some sort of feedback loop between the body and the mind. And I'm actually exploring this with one of the companies that we're looking at um, getting involved with where they're doing um, vestibular nerve stimulation. Okay. And it, it just basically saying that um, the, the body is somewhat like the iPhone and like the iPhone tracks motion through these sensors that your body, which doesn't count calories, by the way, and I, that was certainly a surprise for me. I don't think a lot of people realize your body has no idea how many calories you take in or how many you um, use, but it's tracking something because it will upregulate and downregulate your metabolism. And so mm. what's that based on? And one of the things that this company anyway is guessing that it is, is pure motion. And so if you stimulate the vestibular nerve, which actually tracks motion, 
um, then you can actually upregulate your metabolism, which is pretty interesting. And stimulating more than just like walking down the stairs to uh, make a pot of coffee, I'm guessing. Sadly, sadly. Yes. So what it's doing anyway, their device, is it like a electrical impulse at a certain um, kilohertz? I forget what it is, like a thousand or something like that. And it just yeah. it feels like a really, really minor shock yeah. right behind your ear. And um, some of the data coming out, I'm always super skeptical, so um, I'm calling BS for now. Right. Uh, but I've tried it a few times. It's it's pretty interesting. It makes you feel like you've. Um, it makes you feel like you're floating. A lot okay. of people will correlate it to drinking wine. Um, I don't drink wine, so I couldn't tell you. Right. Uh, it doesn't quite feel like vodka, which I've had <laughs> my share of. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. So anyway, I hit the gym just to um, be stronger, to be in shape, to optimize for my mind. And then if I'm really trying to get shredded, then I'll do cardio. But I. Typically avoid that. Right, right. And do you, is this something that, that's been around since youth? I mean, were you quite active as a young no, man? No, no. So a lot of this was me trying to escape the fate that so many people in my family came to, which is, I, I grew up in a morbidly obese family, so just a huge number of my relatives are um, way, way, way overweight. Where'd you grow up, by the way? Tacoma, Washington. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right down the road from Seattle. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Um, kind of a interesting town, huh? Um, well, if we're industrial esque, can we say? Or I, I would go more certainly when I was growing up, it teetered on being rural. So okay. it was like the high school farm was like walking distance from my house. You had to have an acre of land to build a house. Um, I don't think any of these rules hold true anymore, but right. when I was there, that's what it was like. So it was like I lived on a dead end road and it was like really quiet and a little bit sleepy. You could walk, your parents didn't mind you riding a bike somewhere. Right. Um, so, but it was anything but metropolitan. And that was why when I went to school, I wanted, I was either going to go to school in LA or New York, period. That was just the way it was going to be. Um, Cause I so desperately wanted to be in a big city and have that experience and, and never look back. And, and really escape, escape the circumstances there as well. You know what's well. interesting? I, I'm a move towards guy. So okay. I wasn't moving away, even the weather, which is a, an atrocity. Right. Uh, I <laughs> right. wasn't, I wasn't moving yeah. away from that. So yeah. growing up as a kid, I didn't think twice about it. I loved it. Be, the cold and the rain make me feel creative like really creative yes and as somebody yes. who pursued film that was like dude I, I didn't like when I got to LA and I said I likened it the sunshine all the time I likened it to a friend who never stopped smiling like at first it's like kind of rad like wow this dude's upbeat and then after a while you're like hey like I know. calm down over here let's have a different emotion I know I know so. it's it's just it's it's a, it's just too intense after a while you know and people don't understand the need for seasons yeah. you know I feel like fall winter spring there's a, there's a purpose to all of those right you act differently in those no I think question. your mind works differently and I'm, I'm absolutely with you when it comes to uh focus and um you know creative focus and how that's helped by by bad weather, actually. No question. Yeah. So you must have been crazy creative as a child. <laughs> um, man, I, I wasn't crazy anything other than my mom called me busy. Okay. So I asked my mom one time because I, I wanted to be a stand-up comic when I was young. No way. Yeah, yeah. Why? Who were your heroes back then? Uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah. Yeah, Jim Carrey was my hero. And he, oh, man, like, I remember, do you remember In Living Color? Yes. All right, when that came on, dude, I was just like, I was about it. Like, yes. that was appointment TV for me. Uh, just he was he was incredible. Yeah, what was that? Keenan Ivory Wayans. Yes. Um, uh, uh, Tommy uh, Davidson. Davidson, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course the girls, the dancing girls. Oh yeah, the fly girls. The Jennifer fly Lopez. Girl. Come J-Lo on now. Came from there. Yeah, man. They were. <laughs> yeah. that, that was that show was legendary. Indeed. And he was the freak on that show. You oh know, yeah. And just face. so funny. Yeah. So funny and really ended up being so much more than just the token white guy. Yeah. And uh, I his comic gifts are unbelievable just right. unbelievable so. and you and and you thought 
maybe this is something I could do? Or was it just like, wow, I want to be as funny as this dude? No, no, I really thought that I was going to do it. And I did a lot of stand-up comedy. And in fact, do you know who um, Mitch Hedberg is? Yes. So he's the reason that I stopped trying to be a stand-up comic. And so I was doing... He passed uh, away. Yes. Uh, I was uh, heartbroken. Um, was that a drug-involved thing yeah, as well? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And the rumor is that he did drugs to deal with stage fright and all that stuff. And right. So I was hard on that path. I'd graduated from film school and things weren't going the way that I expected. And I thought, okay, I'm going to fall back on my comedy chops and you know i'll get people's attention that way and obviously that'll build towards a film career it's so clear right because these things happen like within months if you just want it yeah (laughs) i mean so yeah sometimes it takes that long usually it's faster right so i was like okay we'll do this and went to this open mic night and i was funny but not like hysterical and it's an open open mic night. So you get these really experienced comedians that come and try out new material. In fact, one of the Wayans, uh, Kim Wayans, was there trying oh, out right. new material. And so everyone's leaving. Like, the open mic, most of them are horrible. And they're, the crowd's thinning, 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 because they were all there to see their friend do the open mic. And then you get these professional comedians trying stuff, and so most of it's failing. So This Mitch, isn't Tacoma, but No, way. no, this is here. This is the Laugh Factory. Oh, wow. Okay. wow. So I've been on the Laugh Factory stage. That's a, that's, um, you know, that's a claim to fame for sure. Not bad, not bad. But that's a, and how old were you back then? Uh, this was probably 22. Okay, all right, we're jumping ahead, but that doesn't matter, because I, I, what I, 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 this idea of stand-up comedy is incredibly interesting to me because it's, it is incredibly hard. Oh, it's yeah. a really yeah. hard. It's it's really hard to 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 understand that you know the key to so much success in that field is getting up on stage and making yourself vulnerable and mm-hmm. and and being able to deal with the barbs coming your way. What kind of things did you learn from that? Uh, well, how to think quickly on your feet, and that thinking quickly on your feet is a result of hours and hours and hours of practice, and that nobody just rolls up and is funny. Like, you can roll up and be living room funny. You're not going to roll up and be stage funny. Right. Um, and so I had put just an obscene amount of time into getting funny, and in high school, it was really all about speech and debate for me. I was in on the drama team. Like, I was literally the king of the nerds, and uh, just really dove into that universe. And for four years in high school, every lunch break, so whatever that 30, 60 minutes, whatever it is, I would do a routine. And my goal was to, and always improv, always. So my routines weren't like written out. I would have like a couple things I knew I wanted to talk about, but then it would just be free flow. And um, uh, I, I just remember like, during lunch, my goal was to get this one kid to spit something through his nose. Like, that was it. Like, if I did that, then okay, today was a win. If I didn't, man, I just didn't bring the funny. Right. And uh, I did that for four years. So by the time I walked onto the stage at the Laugh Factory, I had done a lot of stand-up comedy. So you were, you were working on bits, like at home, and you were yeah, kind yeah. of Yeah, in the mirror, dude. Like, like, this is, there are no accidents in stand-up comedy. So, and Jim Carrey talked a lot about this, the time in front of the mirror. Because you need to know, when I hold my face, what do I look like? Right. And so I remember back in the day, before or resting bitch face was yeah. the thing. I used to tell people I have an angry neutral face right. because I've spent the time in the mirror like looking, what do I look like when I do that? Yeah. I'm like, I look mad as hell. Like, yeah. what is going on? So I really had to learn like how to, to modulate my expressions externally because as an introvert, which by the way is weird for a stand-up comic, uh, as an introvert, like none of that came naturally to me. So I, I don't really think that's weird, it. by the way. I think that I think that most people do it. Uh, most people who do stand-up comedy, I feel, are introverts. That's interesting. I just feel like it's something that... Um, it's it's if anything it's 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 not a coping mechanism it's it's a way to reverse you know what's what maybe is deep inside you and and really kind of push through into into an area of unfamiliarity i mean i i i think it's i think it's fascinating i i think the courage that that uh, profession requires is is insane insane yeah and and 
did you think you were funny? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. no question. Yeah. And, and I mean, just look, the outside world is going to tell you if you're funny or not. Sure. So um, the outside world definitely told me that I was living room funny. Right. And so when I went on stage, this is my Mitch Hedberg story. When I went on stage, and I was funny, but I wasn't like hysterical. And I thought, okay, you know, through all things, um, you can get better with practice. And Mitch Hedberg takes the stage, and almost everybody has left at this point. And his agent comes on and is like, look, don't leave. This is the funniest man in America. You're going to want to see this guy. And so literally, my friend and I stood up to leave. And then when he said that, I thought, all right, you know, what's one more person? Because he was the last comic for the night. We sat back down. And then if you've ever heard, if you haven't heard his comedy, at the end of this interview, go look up Mitch Hedberg because he is truly the funniest human I have ever seen in my life. Um, and then in the middle of that, so he comes on, never heard of him before. And he does like these really, it's, they're super short jokes. So it's set him up, knock him down, set him up, knock him down. Most of his jokes are like two or three lines max. And halfway through his act, I actually wondered, can you die laughing? Like, is that a thing? I could not get my breath. My stomach hurt. I was, I was, tears were running down my face. I was in such a state of hysteria. Like, yeah. his jokes were so funny that in that moment, I thought, to get that funny, I would have to dedicate my life to it. And for me, it was just meant to be a stepping stone to something else, my very foolish plan. Right. So I thought, I'm, I'm never going to dedicate myself to, to being that level of funny because yeah. the amount of hours, the traveling, the, the just hours on stage he must have clocked to get to that point yeah. just seemed unreal. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, that I was grateful for it because seeing what excellence looked like, I knew I wasn't prepared to give myself to it like that to become that good. Interesting. And then what uh, was there a fallback plan? Well, the the only plan was to become a filmmaker. Right. Like that was it. That was a plan. And I was just trying to use stand up comedy to get there because I thought, you know, I was living room funny enough that I was like, oh man, like I can leverage this. Like I could get people's attention because, you know, you'd seen people do that where they started as a comedian, they got like a TV show, then the TV show turned into a film career, and then the film career turned into directing. Yeah, there's a fellow named Jeff. Apatow that did pretty decently in that. There you go. Yeah, yeah. He's taking over the world, and there were so many been people. You, Tom. It could have been me, man. But I, <laughs> I bailed. I you bailed, bailed on, on your dream. I did. I, the funny thing is, so many people have said, like, you know, I don't, I like, I don't see the connection between, like, you wanted to be a filmmaker, but you end up being an entrepreneur. But the reason that I had success as an entrepreneur was I understood filmmaking as a marketing device. Like, film is just psychology. Period. Even stand-up comedy psychology. You have to be able to project yourself into how you'll be perceived, and so knowing how to orchestrate somebody's feelings, whether to make them laugh or to cry or whatever, is, is a true understanding of what they call theory of mind, right? I, I can project myself into that person, understand them. And that's all you're doing as a marketer, is saying, how will this content be perceived? What will it make you think about my brand? And so I was leveraging all the filmmaking stuff. And because I was so obsessed with filmmaking and really believed that it was the ultimate form of, I'll say, mind control, which is really my deepest obsession in life, um, it was the ultimate form of mind control that back in 2009, when nobody was thinking about content marketing, that was the move that we made when we founded Quest, was right. this is all going to be socially driven. It's all going to be around content. And I mean, it's obvious now, but in 2009, this was not obvious. This was me pissed off that I wasn't enjoying my life, that I was chasing money and coming up empty. And so what would I love doing even if I were failing? And it became this thing, I want to help my family who are morbidly obese, and I want to get back into psychology. I want to get back into filmmaking. And I want that to be the core of how we market. And I want it to be uplifting. That was really important to me. Before, and so, before we get to your uh, mildly alarming obsession with mind control, <laughs> um, do we uh, do we maybe row back and and talk about uh, Tacoma and then the decision to leave Tacoma? Yeah, let's do it. Was that was that a um, 
what was that born out of? Was it just, you know, recognizing that this isn't where you wanted to kind of keep going? Because, I mean, I feel like a lot of people live in, you know, you said to yourself, it's a rural community. I feel like those folks um, recognize that, you know, th- there's a certain familiarity. There's a lot of comfort to that, right? There's a lot of comfort in the known. Um, it's hard to break out of that. How did you do that? Yeah, so two things. One, um, I'm a move towards guy, so there's two kinds of people. You can move away from something or move right. towards something. So right. there were people who just like, I have to get out of my hometown. That wasn't my shtick. Like, I loved it. And then the other was, so I was moving towards a big city, and I just thought, you know, all the opportunities that I want, they're going to be in a big city. No famous filmmakers ever got famous in Tacoma, so that just seemed like a bad strategy. And, and like thinking back and think about when I, so when I'm graduating high school, it's like 94, dude, there was nowhere but LA for film. It was like LA, if you wanted to make major Hollywood um, blockbusters and New York, if you wanted to go the indie route. And so I was seriously considering both. And, um, cause I, I had been doing the comedy thing all through high school and I honestly, I wanted to take myself seriously. So when I went to, um, cause I used a, a, a very aggressive form of like self-deprecating humor. So it was like always making fun of myself. And be, when you do that other people don't take you seriously so here i am i'm really ambitious i've got all this drive but all people see is the comedian Mm. and so i thought okay when i go to film school i'm going to be in a different city i can reinvent myself so i really did take seriously possibly becoming more of an art house um film guy and then I just started, you know, thinking, what do I really want to do? I want to make big films. I want to make things that a lot of people see. And so that was ultimately why I went there. And then somebody randomly told my dad that the best film school um, on the planet was USC. And it was like, I was just so ignorant. I had no idea. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, well, if that's it, then I'll go there. And, and so that began that journey. So that, anyway, that's a long way of saying I'm a move towards guy. And then the other part is my mom all but kicked me out. So I almost chickened out at the last second because every one of my friends, Friends went to the same school. And so I was like, well, and it in was the, state in the school. same area. Yeah. Right. So I was like, I want to go, maybe I should just go to that school. And my mom was like, are you out of your mind? Like you have to chase your dreams. Like you've got to do this. You don't ever want to look back in your life and say, what if? And so because she was pushing me that, that, and I just wanted to go. Um, but I did, excuse me, I did need that final push. And, and then I went. And That's cool. History. And how, how were, and so the, the family was super supportive. Yeah. My mom has always been my biggest cheerleader. Um, yeah. My dad also very supportive. So, you know, I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not one of those guys that had, you know, people hating on him as a kid. And, and if they did, I would have been so blind to that because I was so oblivious. Like when I hear, uh, yeah, I was just an oblivious kid. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, they they supported me and they've always been amazing. And um so you did the USC film school thing and then um and then you had that that moment at 22 when you saw Mitch Hedberg and you realized, oh, "Okay." Yeah, <laughs> so that, that's a whole another level. That's a whole other level, but to go from that to um I mean, you said it yourself. Uh, where where are the similarities in being an entrepreneur and 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 maybe even stand-up comedy or film school? Where where how was that a natural path in that is? Well, to say that it's a natural path yeah. may not just in that not a lot of people go down that road, but when you start breaking it down to so Elon Musk talks about get to the physics of a problem. And there's the same notion in psychology. W- once you get to the baseline psychology of a human being, now you're at the physics of the problem. And to be a marketer is, is a game of psychology purely. You're trying to persuade people to buy your thing, to think a certain way about your brand. Um, and so all of that, like there were so many natural connections to um 
to film and what I'd learned there, what I'd learned about writing, copywriting just went naturally with what I'd learned from a film perspective, being able to write multiple voices, which you have to be able to do as a screenwriter. So I spent all this time training as a screenwriter, thinking about characters, thinking about my audience, being able to seamlessly write as one person and then another person so that I could address different audiences and I could write copy that made sense for them. But the real transitional moment was I was teaching a class on filmmaking, and these two guys came through. Uh, Impressive, man. Oh, well, thank you. What are you, like, in your early 20s or mid-20s? Yeah, I was in my early 20s. There was a school called the... So you graduated USC Film School yeah. and immediately started teaching about film. Not quite immediately. I <laughs> right. had I had some uh, some pretty interesting uh, side turns in there, but not too long after. Okay. Um, I start teaching at a film school, and it was New York Film Academy in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, it's not confusing, confusing at all. Yeah, yeah. no, not at all. <laughs> and uh, these two guys came through, and they said, basically, like, you're coming to the world with your hand out. Like, if you ever want to control your art, you need to learn to control the money and so they said look we're starting this company we need a copywriter come be our copywriter but don't think of yourself as a copywriter you can be a partner in the company you just have to become the right person for that role and so I took them seriously and I just poured myself into getting great at that and leveraging what I knew about psychology what I knew about um, you know uh, filmmaking as a marketing tool if you will and got good. And mm -hmm. over eight and a half years, I became very proficient and was getting good at business and was willing to just work in human number of hours, not take days off and, you know, working around the clock. Um, and so I worked my way up. And by the time we sold that company, which is its own story, but by the time we sold that company, um, I had earned through sweat equity 10% of the company and um, became the chief marketing officer. And then from that, we, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so we had like this whole big conversation about, you know, what would we, what do we really want to do? And then that was the story from back in 2009, which then ends up becoming Quest. So was it the same guys that you yeah. partnered with? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I was partners with them for like 14 years. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and then how did you go about thinking about the product? Like you, you have all this, you have the expertise and it's about applying that expertise in a way that is gives you satisfaction right and fulfills you every day um talk to me a little bit about your obsession with a healthy lifestyle and and maybe when that began and and how that led to to what would become quest nutrition so as a kid i always knew two things i knew one day i would be ridiculously wealthy and that i would have six-pack abs yeah now, this is coming from a kid sort of hovering between blue and white collar in tacoma who's chubby uh, so like, I didn't know how I was going to pull it off exactly, but those were like massively driving forces in my life. And so I started working out in my early twenties to get girls. I'll just be really honest with you. Mm -hmm. Um, wanted to get girls, had no game whatsoever. And so I just started being strategic, right? Find somebody that, um, has, that's living the life that you want to live and figure out what they do. So I went to this guy who's in great shape, got tons of girls. And I was like, what's the secret? Right. Um, and so he broke it down for me and I, sort of took it out of his lingo which was like be a jerk to women which is a horrific strategy do not do that mm -hmm. um, but be confident which is what he meant so the byproduct of him um, sort of being above it if you will was that he came across completely confident in himself and that is attractive to women um, and so realizing that I'm just I, I could never be a jerk like that doesn't resonate with me um, but that the confidence thing that I saw the way that he acted was so different than how I acted yeah um, and so I began to employ that and just try to get in shape and so started hitting the gym really clumsy and then when I met these two guys that ultimately became my partners in quest they were 
hugely muscular, in amazing shape, um, and business guy. So I was like, whoa, like these two clearly, like the two things that I want to be wealthy and to have six pack abs, like they're living that dream. Right. So let me go and learn as much as I can from those guys. And that then that took me out of the sort of stumbling around in the gym, not knowing what I was doing, eating uh, snack wells, because I thought that, you know, as long as I wasn't eating fat, that I was going to get shredded. So I was eating all the sugar in the world. What are snack wells? Uh, I like to think that they've gone out of business okay. because they are selling like <laughs> faux health. Because okay. it was like, hey, we have no fat, but we have like gaggles of sugar. Right. So that wasn't working. Sugar powers your workouts, though, doesn't right? it? Right. That's what I thought. So <laughs> it also powers your obesity, which is amazing. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, they really helped me like get a path, walk it, stick to it, and then start seeing results. How did your family, the, you mentioned you had a couple of obese family members, how did they react to this new kind of chapter? Were you already kind of proselytizing back then? Uh, I Well, yeah, back then I was proselytizing like a fool. Yeah. And if I can save anyone that same fate i will tell you that if you live in a certain way that gets results people will notice that and they'll ask you what you're doing you don't have to proselytize the moment you're like being proactive and like stopping people and telling them what you're doing like you're just pissing them off so you're making them way less likely to listen to you so i made Such all of those mistakes. A fine line to walk in today's social media age by the way dude well said yeah well said uh well i'd love to get into that a little bit better especially uh, a little bit further down the line especially from uh, with someone like you who's who's kind of really an attention merchant, if you will, yeah. you know? So, uh, but uh, but then, uh, uh, you know, Quest is, you know, I mean, it started out as a protein bar? Yeah, health that bar. was our, yeah. our first product. We always yeah. knew we wanted to be a food company, but right. that was our first product. A crowded market, though, that you came Super into. Super crowded. Uh, just confidence that you could change it? No, it really was. Um, Quest was born out of misery. Yeah. So for eight and a half years, we built a technology company with security software. And by the end of that, I was literally like, I don't care about money anymore. Like, this is stupid. I'm making more money than I've ever made before in my life. And I'm not happy. So I'm not going to be one of those idiots that, like, for 30 years, it's just like, oh, I've been miserable for the last 30 years and well, but I wanted to make good money. So I said, no, this isn't going to work. I went into my partners and I said, look, guys, um, go ahead. When is it best to make a lot of money? <laughs> I mean, because when you're young, you know, you, you have all those guys who like uh, you go to college with and they end up becoming hedge fund managers and mm-hmm. live like these soulless, brutal lives and, you know, uh, end up um, making tons of money and retiring at the age of 40. And then not, you know, you feel like they've missed the best half of their their life, you know, in terms of like experimenting and checking things out and exploring and making mistakes and that sort of a thing. Seems like it would make more sense to like make money later. <laughs> it's know? interesting. So I think about it maybe a little bit differently, which is um, money can't touch how you feel about yourself and how you feel about yourself is all that matters. So people commit suicide when they no longer believe they'll ever feel good about themselves again. And it's, it's false. They're wrong. But if they were right, it's actually a pretty reasonable response. If you could never feel good about who you are ever, ever again, what would be the point? You'd be miserable all the time. So I think because people admire people with money because they look at all the cool things that they have and they think, wow, if I had that like i would be so impressed with myself because they're impressed with that person but then when they get the money they realize oh like this literally can't touch how i feel about myself how i feel about myself is about becoming something so like i got into this whole thing my poor mother-in-law oh, it likes to give me uh likes to give all of the kids um scratch cards at christmas time and i don't like winning money because to me, I didn't earn it, right? So right. the only thing is, have I become the kind of person that can earn money doing something beautiful for the world? And if I am awesome, I would love to get that money because money is way more powerful than you think. It's just not powerful in the ways that people think. Where'd you get that? Is that is that does that come from your father the or your mother? No, the, the I, I've like... learned everything the hard way. 
Yeah. So it came from getting money. And look, on the scale of where I'm at now, it was nothing. But back then, it felt like a lot of money. And it wasn't making me feel better about myself. Right. And I was spending every day um, focused on a product that I thought was okay. Like, it wasn't bad. But it, it, I didn't feel like I was trying to do something amazing for the world. And for better or worse, I'm wired to be excited um, when other people win. Like, I love that. That moment of awakening. I love doing cool things for people. I love adding value. Like, I do well as a team. Like, that's my jam. So, and as a, as back in the technology company from the product side, we just wanted to be clever marketers. So it wasn't about like really making something amazing that would help somebody and make right. their life better. And then I could just take in that celebratory moment where somebody, you know, writes you a letter and it's like, man, you changed my life. Like, this is incredible. Thank you so much. Um, so it was like, I just felt like it's empty. like how you win at marketing. Essentially. Yeah, that's that's. And then if you win, then that's it. You know, right. like that's that's and there's no reward at the end of that. Really. Exactly. And okay. to me, this is a game of brain chemistry. Uh -huh. So, you know, once you know what you want to do with the money and on the other side of that is something empowering for other people, you're doing something great, like Bill Gates is going to cure malaria. Right. He's going to do it because he has access to resources, but he knows what he wants to do with the money. And so that to me is when money becomes really interesting. So the my thing is I, I didn't I'm not sad that I pursued it early in my life because it taught me very powerful lessons. But what I want people to hear is that when I actually made money was when I walked into my partners and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. Here's your equity back. If I don't cross the finish line, I shouldn't get anything for this. I have no interest whatsoever in chasing money ever again. I'm going to go do what makes me feel most alive. If I can make money at that, that will be awesome. I'll be very grateful, but I'm never going to prioritize money ever again. That decision, because then you start going, okay, what's true for me? What was true for me was I want to bring value to people. I want to do something that I would love doing even if I were failing. I want to feel passionate. I want my day-to-day -day thing, that grind, to be fun. I want it to be empowering. I want to be excited every day when I wake up. And if there's a business, because look, by this point, I understood business. Right. So I was like, okay, I know how to look at a problem and say, is there a big opportunity here? Yes or no. And where does that big opportunity line up with something that I actually care about? And so for three very different reasons for all of us, it, it centered around nutrition. And so for me, it was I wanted to save my mom and my sister. They struggled profoundly with their weight. And I knew if we could make food that they could choose based on taste and it happened to be good for them, that that might actually be a winning solution. And that there was, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe a billion or more people that struggled with food in the same way that they did. So if we could solve the problem that it was a really big business opportunity. And in 2009, I could just see social media is about to change everything. And I remember pulling my partners into the conference room and saying, look, this social media thing, everyone thinks is a distraction. It's not. It's a megaphone. And you put a megaphone in somebody's hands. Now all of a sudden it gets interesting. Like these people within minutes of an interaction with you can tell a global audience what they think about you. We just need to talk about evangelizing them. How do we make them so passionate about our product that they want to tell people? Then you can do it for free. And I can feel good about myself because I'm helping people, which is what I want to do. Right. And so they saw the vision. They were totally on board. And that's how how we launched it. it was all social. It was about finding those thousand true fans, people that would just go gaga for what we were doing, that understood that we had a better product than anybody else in the market, that we were always going to do things to prioritize the quality of the product and its metabolic impact, not profits. Mm -hmm. And then that became our marketing message. Hey, guys, we're not trying to prioritize for profits. We're trying to make sure that you're evangelized, that it's actually helping you in your life. And so people felt really good telling other people about us, and we grew insanely fast. Yeah, um thousands of percentage points yeah it was fifty-seven thousand percent in our first three years alone i didn't i didn't even think that was a number i know right so it was <laughs> i thought it was like a hundred percent and you maxed out there right yeah it was crazy <laughs> um how important is tone in this um you're talking about 
you know, what you're talking about is using influencers, is, is, is using, um, is developing a social media strategy at a time right at the cusp of social media, mm-hmm. um, really exploding and, and becoming part of our everyday life. Um, we live a bu- in a bubble here in Los Angeles. We live, I, I would say, in, 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 you know, San Francisco and New York and Seattle, all of these metropolitan areas. Um, there is this kind of inherent uh, feeling that we're talking to ourselves, right? And and it's easy for us here in West LA, you know, where everyone's in a yoga class or a Pilates <laughs> class or that sort of thing to, to kind of understand the importance of that. But how do you strike the tone that reaches someone in middle America? How do you strike the tone that reaches your mom, that reaches your sister in Tacoma? Um, how important is it in not talking down to, to folks in this? Um, because... I think everyone looks at billboards, everyone looks at TV, uh, you know, looks at their favorite actors on television and, and, you know, in the Marvel superhero universe and checks out the men's fitness profile and what they did to get in shape and that sort of thing. That's aspirational for a lot of people. But those steps to get there are incredibly formidable. Mm. So I just feel like, you know, the, the, the most difficult part mostly is, is in, in doing what you're doing is how you how you reach those people in a way that feels authentic to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you're into the, the second great movement of my life, which is impact theory, um, which is trying to answer that question. So if, if you want to help with the body, you have to make the realization that people eat for pleasure, not for sustenance. So until you can own that, until you can just accept that that is the truth of the human condition, that nature leveraged pleasure to get you to go face lions and hunt and gather and climb trees to get honey and like things that were brutally difficult and they put you at risk. Like we don't have a sense of how risky getting food used to be. And so nature really had to give you an incentive. And it's like kids, right? Kids are a pain pain, man. Like that does not look easy. So what does nature do? Nature gives you two incentives. One, sex is awesome. And then two, you fall in love with your kids in a way that like you don't fall in love with anything else. So nature is just like ensured that that's going to happen. And so that is looking, understanding that on the body side was critical. And that's how Quest took off. And then understanding on the mind side that it's, it's a game of identity. And so how do you transmit ideas that can actually influence someone's identity so that they're going to show up at the gym every day and not just the first day, you know, July 2nd, like the busiest day in the the gym out of the year, but then February 1st, like nobody's in the gym anymore. So how do you get that to become a consistent behavior? And it, it comes down to changing identity. And there's some awesome studies on this. The only way that human beings can assimilate truly disruptive information is through narrative, period. So if we know that, if that's just like the truth, like people eat for pleasure, not for sustenance, then I know that there are five ways to get people to change their identity. Books, comic books, uh, movies, TV shows, and video games. Like those are the, the five primary drivers of narrative today. And so, okay, well then I know that I'm going to have to go into that realm in order to pack those things with the information that you need to impact your own ideology, the things that are going to build your sense of identity. But then the reason, because we've been making awesome mythology for a very long time, so why doesn't it work anymore? Because I think we're living through this really weird time, and look, this is me ripping off Joseph Campbell, so if you haven't read The Power of Myth, check it out. But Joseph Campbell was saying, we're living through a weird time now where people no longer believe 
that the myths are real. So like you have to put it in context. For thousands of years, people actually believed the mythology. So the stories that you told your kid about a god punishing a human or whatever, they were real. They were literal. And so, hey, man, you better figure this out. Otherwise, the gods are going to punish you too. And since they believed that that were true, it became really imperative to take those lessons that you heard in that story and apply them to your own life about how to be a good person, how to respect the animals that you're hunting. And, you know, like, I mean, just like the entire umwelt of our ideological world is contained in all these stories that were passed on for generations and generations. So I'm a huge believer in science, love science to death, but you have to acknowledge that science has made it impossible for most people to believe in those stories anymore. Mm -hmm. So now what do you do? How do you pass ideology in an effective way if we've, from a natural selection standpoint, we have evolved to get our most disruptive ideas through narrative, but I no longer believe in that narrative, you're going to hit a crisis point. And I think that's where we are today, where you have kids living at home 40 years old. Um, you have this just like adolescence that, that never stops. There's none of these transitional moments. All of our rituals have been robbed of real power. So, you know, he, and Joseph Campbell said, one of the reasons I think that the divorce rate is so high is because the marriage as a ritual just doesn't have the power that it used to have. And I mean, we could do a whole show on that. But so all of those things were me trying to answer that question that you just posed, which is how do you really like affect that? How do you change people's identity so that they stick with the hard things? And so that's, that's our shtick. Cause I want to, I think that companies, and this is where my, my ideology gets very complicated, but stick with me for a second. Uh, I believe that companies are how you change the world. Okay. So it's not a bunch of people sitting around saying good things and, and trying to be nice to each other. It's not government. It's about using the marketplace to get people excited about something. And then, so Tom's Shoes is an awesome example, right? Buy one, give one. And so he was trying to help with these kids who needed shoes by creating an economic vehicle that was self-sustaining. And that's why I think that's important. It's self-sustaining, right? So, um, but how do you influence that next generation of companies? And it comes down to identity. It comes down to that ideology. So I know that tomorrow's entrepreneurs are living in a mythology rich environment where they're not extracting any values from that mythology. And so like, look at star Wars, right? It has amazing mythology and has all this like Eastern philosophy in it and good versus evil and like how not to go fall to the dark side. And like, and let's take just a, a funny meme for a second. Come to the dark side. We have cookies. Now it's funny. It's cute, but there actually is something to that. Like there's, um, Rage is intoxicating. Rage has a clarity. And so you actually have to warn people not to get too sucked in. Because if you're an anxious person and I piss you off, you're not anxious anymore. You're filled with rage and it's wonderful. And so people have to understand, like, these things serve purposes. And so if you don't teach people how to navigate their own, this is why I'm obsessed with mind control, because it's all about your own mind, right? I'm mm -hmm. not worried about controlling other people's minds. I'm going to control my own. So once you understand that, like, the game you're playing is controlling your own mind, that the reason Star Wars is amazingly powerful is it literally is this allegory for how not to give in to the rage, to the anger, to all that, because while it has this immediate power, right, and it always talks about the people that go to the dark side, the fucking powerful... I don't know if we can swear. Yeah, we just did. All it right. doesn't matter. It, we're, we're, it's fine, bro. You've it's got fine. all this yeah. power. Yeah. But then the light side, which maybe takes more discipline, more time, you have to be more careful. Yeah. It's It makes you more human, right? Which is exactly why it's pitted this machine against man. So you can either maintain your humanity right. and get the power, but it's slower, it's harder, it takes more discipline, you have to live by a code, or you can just be incredibly powerful, but you give up your humanity. Yeah. Okay, that's all there in Star Wars, yeah. a movie. Yeah. But we're not telling people how to extract that and actually think about yourself as an entrepreneur. And are you going to be on the Darth Vader side and just think about profits, be a clever marketer, and take from people? 
which can be very effective in the short term, by the way. You see companies do it all the time. Or are you going to play the long game, be the Luke Skywalker, understand that, yes, it may be a little harder to be delivering value all the time, all the time, to prioritize your customer over profits. But in the long run, that humanity, especially now with social media, you're going to be rewarded for that. But you have to play the long game. Now, to me, that's all present in Star Wars. Right. So, But you need now this kind of podcast, literally. So if you look at what we're doing, we're doing social content, podcasts, video series, all that kind of stuff. And then we want to create traditional narrative. We want to beat Disney at their own game. And 50 years from now, my hope is that our studio will be bigger than theirs. So that that's like the goal. But I know why I'm doing that. I'm not just trying to sell tickets. I'm not just trying to sell plush toys. I'm trying to do both of those, but I'm trying to do it in a way that reinforces ideology that creates the next generation of entrepreneurs and linchpin employees so that companies get great and that companies serve people, serve the world rather than just trying to extract. Right. And at the end of the day, I mean, even Tom's got acquired by Bain Capital or yeah. bought a stake, uh, Bain Capital had a huge stake in Tom. So, I mean, you know, the payday comes in the end, I suppose the message is, you know, I know several people from Tom's who went off to start their own kind of one for one project. So that that's a pretty powerful example in that that sense. But, you know, what you're running against with that is human nature, right? Um, and especially in the society in which we live, which is um, places so much value on acquisition and, and material goods and that sort of a thing. Um, how do you how do you get people, especially people from, you know, impoverished areas or people from, you know, from lower income families who, you know, the, the goal is to like to make money and get out of their circumstances and be rich and that sort of a thing? How do you change that mindset? How do you say like, OK, do that, but also make sure you're like you're you're shouting out your local community or, or making sure that, you know, whatever business you have that makes you tons of money. Um, also has a social component to it. Yeah, so my thing is you have to do what's real. So get to the physics of the problem. The truth is that building a company that looks after its employees is the only way to have a sustainable company. So you can have a quick fix. You can have a short-term victory um, by being exploitative, but it won't work in the long run. So imagine for a second the Bain Capital gets into Tom's because they realize, hey, we can bring some greater efficiencies to this. We can actually give more. And Bain is staffed entirely by people who have a vision for how you make the world a better place through commerce. And they're not just trying to take Tom's and sort of milk it for whatever remaining capital it has. And as long as we get a 3x return on our money, we don't care what happens to Tom's. Like, imagine mm. that world. I think that world can exist because it's better. It's better for business. It's going to make you more money in the long run. And there's a whole movement now growing up called the green, the evergreen movement of building companies that are meant to last, which we used to do and don't do anymore. Um, and we've gotten in this sort of flip, uh, monetize quickly cycle. I am not conflicted about wealth creation. I think Everybody who's interested in putting in that kind of effort um, should go after wealth creation, but you should know why you're doing it. Otherwise, you're never going to have the energy to get to the other side. Yeah. And understand that in today's landscape with social media, with our ability to authentically connect with the owners of the company, that you're living in a time where the more you actually want to help people, it's not pretend, you actually want to help people, that your company is more likely to be the one left standing than if you go in and be exploitative. So just trying to get people to see that, that that's boiling the problem down to the Yeah, business. authenticity and all that and, and, and exhibiting and also reacting. I mean, you look at Uber nowadays as well and just the browbeating they're getting, they're getting in social media and how, how much change uh, that's forcing in that company. I mean, also the external fact. I mean, you've got the, the president of that company who just resigned recently that sort of a thing but but the price is higher social media has made the price higher for any kind of potential missteps and that sort of thing but i wanted to get back to uh how did you convince your your sister lost how many pounds by the way 120 man. yeah that's Incredible. crazy man that's like a crazy amount of poundage how did you how did, how did you get to her you know when, when we're talking about tone 
Yeah. How did you reach her? She was um, well. First of all, anybody's transformation, they own that, right? Right. So sure. Our thing was she. She said, "You guys were the first ones that didn't tell me to eat less and exercise more. You gave me something that I actually wanted to eat, and it was good for me." And so she just replaced something. So instead of eating M and M's, she would eat our chocolate chip cookie dough bar, for instance. And so then you get into a virtuous cycle. And the problem with food is, food is amazing. It is a drug, and it has awesome effects. And if you've had a bad day may I recommend a bowl of ice cream? Mm -hmm. It really will cheer you up. Like, it's crazy. The psychological um, neurochemical cascade that happens when you have a bowl of ice cream is rad, and it will make you feel good every time. Now, the problem is when you get into an abusive relationship where that's what you're leaning on, then that brain chemistry wears off, you start feeling badly about yourself because you look bad, you feel bad, then the only thing that cheers you up again is another bowl of ice cream or a cookie, and you get into this self-destructive cycle. And that's where most people live with food, and they just can't get it going the other way. And so our attempt was to really reverse that cycle and get a virtuous cycle going, and that's what happened to my sister. So she made one good choice, which led to two, three, and then to the gym, and then you start feeling good, looking good, and you want to do more. You want to get more. You want the praise from other people. And people are always telling you, like, do it because it's you'll live longer, you'll be healthier. No. Humans aren't motivated by that, man. It's like, vanity. Yeah, they want their ass to look good. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, my thing is just own it. Own yeah. it. You want your ass to look good. Awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. But how do you how do you commit to that? Like, how do you stick through it? Well, in the long how term? do you stick through it? Because you know, whatever you get, you get coupled up then at one point, right? Or you get, you know, you get married, or you get, uh, you know, you get to the point in your life where where you're not going around trying to get laid all the time or or trying to meet people. Um, you know, how do you? Uh, see it as part of just kind of a virtuous cycle all about identity right so and identity I like think is i'm this guy i'm the guy who does this kind of a thing one like not something like that yeah exactly that right those right. exact words right. i'm the kind of guy that has the discipline to show up in the gym every day right you repeat that to yourself enough yeah. you'll start actually being the guy that shows up in the gym because if you're repeating it to yourself and you don't show up then you you will feel so weird saying that to yourself yeah. so then you'll finally admit i'm, I'm not the guy like i don't care about yes it. yes tom but do you become less fun um, I, I like to think I'm pretty damn fun. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying you specifically, but like, that's the, you know, I mean, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, that's, that's a bit of a ridiculous uh, question perhaps, but, um, you know, this idea of, uh, uh, also kind of when you're saying I am this person, mm -hmm. you're naturally stopping other types of behavior that you used to, yeah, used to do before and, and that you also identified with, right. The party guy or like the guy who, you know, who could like sit for hours and, and, and have big meals and, you know, chat with friends and that sort of a thing. And, and then if you all of a sudden, you know, you live a very disciplined life. I do. You wake yeah. up naturally, you I know, do. at three 30 in the morning, which is very <laughs> odd to, you know, the vast majority of human beings probably no listening to this. Right. So, right. and, and you're very, you're very particular about what you eat and what you put in your body and that yeah. sort of thing. Like that, that is to me, like, it, it's it, is there a balance there like is there can you can you also like live unhealthily as well is there kind of a middle road to that or is it a, a complete slavish commitment to a different different path that gets you there i i think that there is an infinite number of paths yeah. and for me every decision needs to start with your goal so what's your goal if you want to be the party guy be the party guy like right. you're not going to see me um throw shade yeah. on somebody who is that you that right i feel yeah. so like no no right no now. it's good it's i think it's five years old but it's good right, like right. i, I caught up like, eventually yeah exactly. so yeah i'm not gonna hate on somebody that um 
is is like I'm the party guy, live fast, die young. Respect. Like if right. you know what you're doing, do it. Like commit to it, be all in. It's when people are living a life that they don't intend to live right. because they're caught in some, you know, um, self-destructive behavior. So uh, literally, and this is the thing for me, like I love watching people eat bad food. I absolutely love it. It makes me happy to see them getting happy. I know what the food tastes like, so it's like really, really fun. Sometimes you can even have them describe what it tastes like to you. Like Slowly how is that butter? Slowly. How is that? Exactly. Way, like that butter on there? Does it melt just <laughs> Ever so slightly. Right? Yeah, salty. Exactly. Nice. Repeat that one more time. Sorry. <laughs> Literally. Like I, I because I did I did go through a period with my uh, my doctor said, you know, cut out bread, uh, which is probably my favorite thing on earth is is bread and yeah, butter fair. in a combination. Fair, and, fair. and we were in Europe as well, where the bread and butter is like vastly superior yep. to anything we have here. And um and I, I just asked someone to describe what that tasted like. Absolutely. And it wasn't enough. <laughs> But but it got you part of the it way got there, me part you know of the way there, but it wasn't it wasn't the full. But anyway, um, sorry, that was a wild uh, like tangent. Um, but I you know I think all to to understand a little bit of you know this uh, you know where where this kind of where this kind of goal oriented mentality came from with mm-hmm. you, like where um, and and how you've been able to stick to it. That's what. Yeah, for me, it comes like, what do you want? Like, what do you want badly? You know, and if what you want, so um, if what you want is to really eat a lot of amazing food, like, I'm not your guy. So don't come to me for advice on that because I'm about the flip side of that coin, which is I want to eat it and I don't. And that makes me feel like a badass. And so for me, I'm trying to manage my brain chemistry like anyone else. I want to feel good about myself. And if eating all those things and not caring about what I look like made me feel good and that was part of my identity, hell yeah, I'd rock it. Like I I literally do not have any judgment on people. The only people that I'm sad for are people that want to be this way and live in the opposite direction. Yeah. And so they're torn up about it. Yeah. Somebody who's not conflicted, yeah, man, like that's amazing. Like for me, wealth creation is important, but there are monks out there that are are completely fulfilled. I mean, it just doesn't even make their radar. Rad, respect. But at the same time, I have no interest in being a monk. Like the idea of pulling myself, like I've studied Buddhism enough to understand like the notion of like wanting is the root of all suffering because if you got rid of that desire, then there would be no suffering in that. Yeah, cool. Got, I even believe you, but I have no interest in stepping outside of that. Like I love, I want to see like how much potential I can wring out of myself. I want to constantly be striving to do something amazing. I want to push my skill set forward. Like that's that's the life I want to live and so and you were always like that um i've always been ambitious and i've always had drive but it is important for people to understand that i am not was i am profoundly lazy and so if you want to know why i have the 10 minute rule to get out of bed if i didn't i'd still be in bed right now like i have to put a limit on myself otherwise i don't get to my goals and so i just i so love the act of improving what I'm capable of, whether mentally or physically, like I love that act. The way that some people like to smoke a joint, like my thing is that. That moment where I'm like, whoa, I can lift a weight I couldn't lift before. Um, I can read faster than I used to be able to read. Um, I know more about neuroscience than I used to know. Uh, I'm able to, this was really powerful in my life. I'm able to shorten the amount of time that I spend angry or sad or whatever because I understand brain chemistry and I can begin to take control of my own brain chemistry. Like all of those things, like, they make me feel good about myself and they allow me to navigate my life in a more effective way, meaning it takes me to, to my goals faster. So how do you take that mentality that has worked so well for you and spread it to a group of people who, who, who need it uh, or who, who might be interested in it without seeming like you're 
a self-help guru? Well, my thing is I, I am not trying to convince people. So I am a broadcast. And if this sounds good to you, then come on, let's do some cool stuff. So I'm not for everybody. I'm a very specific flavor. If you dig this flavor, like I love licorice. Right. But other people have likened licorice to writhing maggots. Right. So right. clearly. Wow, that's not, a very vivid, that vivid metaphor. From Bill Watterson, the writer of Calvin and Hobbes. Yes. There what happened go. to that dude? Um, I can actually tell you this, or if you okay. really want to know. I do want to know. All right, so Bill Watterson, who makes my list of the 10 people living or dead that I want to have at my dinner, uh, just because Calvin and Hobbes rocked my world so much. Yep. Um, makes this great piece of art, realizes that everybody wants to commercialize it. That doesn't feel right to him. He feels he's created something really beautiful and pure and doesn't want it to be commercialized, makes enough money, doesn't really have to think about money anymore. He shuts the whole operation down. And as far as I can tell, doubled down and raising his kid or kids, um, doesn't do interviews, doesn't do anything like that, and has recently sort of quietly started um, putting, um, I have only seen one, but I like to think that there's more out there somewhere, um, some new comic strips, but none, I haven't seen any Calvin and Hobbes. So, Interesting. But um, I do, I, my gut is that his kids are old enough now that he's like got the time, and he's sort of, hey, I miss it, like not on a hardcore schedule, like because he, he said I used, that he resented having to milk a comic strip out of everything that happened to him in life. Right. And so just wanted time to just live. Why so. didn't you go the Watterson route, by the way, after Quest Nutrition? Uh, you know, it's interesting. So we made enough money off of Quest. My wife and I could have bought an island and just yeah. been like, all right, this yeah. is, we're going to chill Let's and my ties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even Branson like, has continued to build yeah, brands. Yeah, so. relentless. Yeah. Amazing. But I think it's, it's in him. Yeah, totally. So it's obviously in you, too. Yeah, I just, like, what makes you feel most alive, right? Okay. And the honest answer for me is... One, eking potential out of myself makes me feel alive and is more thrilling than I can express. And then watching somebody else go from not believing in themselves, not believing they can do anything, feeling bad about who they are, feeling bad about their life, to go, oh, wait, all I have to do is accept responsibility, everything is my fault, and then I can change anything I want and become whoever I want. Seeing that moment of awakening where they're empowered by that and they go on to do cool stuff, and people write every single day thanking me and the team at Impact Theory for changing their life. Like, and I'm wired to love that. So it's like however many people write in and say, you know, this, you're a dumbass and this idea doesn't make any sense. and blah, Like that doesn't even phase me compared to knowing that out there is somebody who now will live a better life because they've encountered this ideology. Like that's, that's the juice for me. What are the tenets of the ideology? So there's 25 bullet points. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an official uh, thing. Oh, this is have to. So okay. when we were building Quest, my whole fear was that I would take advantage of employees. Because if you think about ownership employee, like that breakdown on its face is kind of icky. It's like, hey, I own all the equity. So if I ever sell this at my discretion, I get rich as hell and you just get a new boss, right? right? That, that's a bad trade-off to me. So you've got to find a way to make, like my thing was, I promise, if you come to work at Quest, it will be the best thing that ever happened to you. And if it's not, which it was not for many people, by the way, if it's not, I have failed. And so I saw my job was to get better and better and better and better at that. And that that's like a big thing. And I think any owner of any company should be thinking about that. Also, at Impact Theory, we've given ownership to everyone in the company. So that just feels a lot better. Um, so everybody in the company now at Impact Theory has ownership. My job is to make sure that being a part of Impact Theory is the best thing that ever happened to them. And to do that, I have to, like, the physics of the problem is there are 25 things you have to do to your mindset in order to be able to succeed, either as a linchpin employee, mm -hmm. There's a book by Seth Godin, so I won't waste time describing it here. But read that book. Or to become an entrepreneur and go start your own company, like these are the 25 things that are universal that you have to do. And it, it's things like um, 
human potential is limitless. So if you know the human potential is limitless, how you spend your time becomes a spiritual consideration. So wasting your time, probably not the best use of your time. Um, that you can acquire skills at any time, but you have to put in the practice um, that you can um, basically get you know, control over your own emotions, that everything is your fault. So don't blame anyone else for anything. Any obstacle can be overcome. So if you haven't found a solution, that's on you. Um, and there is just stuff like that, like um, all the things that are going to empower you to keep pushing, to learn, to accept that you may not be the person you need to be today, to accomplish what you want to accomplish, but you can become that person. But it's mm. going to take a lot of hard work and dedication to get there. And you involve, and you're, you're. Uh, it's not just reaching the entrepreneurial among your 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 audience, right? It's reaching others as well. How do you how do you do that? Like, how do you do you believe that? Because not everyone is an entrepreneur. Not every yeah, idea is good. Like a lot of ideas are really horrible. A the lot of vast people majority. vastly overestimate how good they are at something or how you know how clever they are. You no know, question. what happens to those folks? Well, they either get good, which right. I believe they can. So if you, I just call it minimum requirements. If you meet minimum requirements, then there's no difference between you and let's really make it nasty. You and Elon Musk, right? So that dude makes me insecure. So let's just start with that. Like. Mm. I am so tempted to put him on a pedestal and just say, he's better than me. Um, But my ideology just won't allow that. So the difference between he and I is that he has put in time and effort into things that I have not put time and effort into. And so let's say that that's false. And let's say that no matter how hard I work, I'll never be him. Yeah. But how much better will I be than I am today if I went down that path? And so that's my hypothesis. Right. And look for things where you get wins. Look for things that you love. Like for me, there's a reason that I do things where I can talk because I've gotten good at articulating ideas, right? I love filmmaking. So it's not a mistake that when I started reading all this research about narrative being the way that we assimilate disruptive information, I was like, oh my God, like if I can find a way to leverage that to do what I want, because I want to be doing that anyway. So you craft this world around you that speaks to the things that you're good at. It speaks to the things you want to get even better at. I believe that you need to assess it's a strength or it's a weakness. If it's a weakness, is it worth it? Or do you hire somebody to do it? It's a strength. Do you love it? If you do, great, get even better at it. And so there's a reason that I'm not pursuing rocket science, I don't get early wins in math. And it would seem to me that being good at math would be a little bit useful if I want to be a rocket scientist. Mm. So I've clearly looked for places where I like get a big return on my time. Um, neuroscience is something that I really, one, I love reading about it. And two, I found that it's really helped me get control of my own mind, get control of my emotions, to be regimented, to be disciplined, to grow my grit, um, you know, to focus on all the things that are going to let me execute, which is whether you want to be an entrepreneur or a linchpin employee, learning to execute is the name of the game. And so psychology, things that I love all happen to revolve around that. So being an entrepreneur gave me a way to express all of those things because you're using market feedback. Am I doing the right thing? Yes or no? The market will tell you. Right. And if it tells you no, if it tells you you're not good at that, you're not clever, your idea is bad or whatever, then you have to adjust. You have to get better. And it's such aggressive feedback Mm. that it's always there you're not going to waste time unless you ignore the signals what are you shit at and uh how long did it take you to realize you were shit at something um i think most people start believing that they're shit at virtually everything and so i certainly have never struggled to realize that i'm shit i've (laughs) struggled to realize that i could get good at something um so Here are things that I think um, I'm really bad at operations. So um, right now we're being listened to by half of my team. And right now, if I could see them, I bet that they're smiling because they know how bad. I think they left a long time ago, actually. (laughs) (laughs) 
they know how bad. Oh no, there's one. Okay, there's two of them. They're, All right, they, good. they've come Just back. Smiling. They heard yeah. what we were talking the about. Greek one smiling. There they are. Right, They're there literally smiling, All laughing. Right. So um, they know that I'm bad at operations. Okay. So. I bring people in that can help me with that. So, but I can help you with vision, right? So, if you want to know where we're going, if you want to make sure that I've got the fortitude and the guts to aim high, um, yeah, I've got you. So, you know, when I left Quest and said, "All right, the next phase is to get bigger than Disney, and we're going to have to build relationships with some of the studios," everyone was like, uh, "How are you going to walk into a studio and command attention?" and you just do. You just believe that you can do it, right? You believe that, look, I've worked this hard, that I have an insight that I think is going to be useful, but I'm open to it not being useful. And they'll feel both. They'll feel that I believe it and that, hey, if you tell me that this doesn't make sense, then I'm very open to that and I'll pivot and move on to something else. Um, so, And we've already gotten meetings and partnerships and things that we just have no right to have. Um, and so I think they can really feel that, that it's, you know, belief comes first. Um, and then just a willing to get good, a willingness to get good at the execution is next. But so operations, something I'm terrible at. I was a terrible manager when I began. In fact, I think I'm still a bad manager. Like I'm a good leader, but a bad manager. Right. Um, and so like, yeah, those are things that, and it it's took incredibly me, challenging. Yeah. And it I took mean, me a while to realize one or the that. other almost, I feel, you know, I'll right. agree to that because it's so true for me. Right. There's probably people out that can do both, but I'm currently bad at managing <laughs> talk about the uh impact theory your podcast you have a lot of impressive people Wyclef Jean who for a 90s hip-hop kid like yourself must yeah. have been a pretty big deal Russell Simmons by the way also um uh what is what is the trait that you found what is the through line with all those guys oh that that's easy so it's people that believe in themselves and are willing to do the work to get good at something mm -hmm. and so you bring up Wyclef perfect story so he wanted to make the so he makes an album most people don't know the Fuji's had an album before the score and it flopped and he went met this um, up and coming producer who was like even younger than he was and he was in his early 20s this kid was like 19 or something and he was like you're too smart for the audience that you're going after if you continue to make music like that that's super eclectic that's really highbrow it's like you're going to keep failing so you need to identify who's your market what's going to resonate with them and then give it to them and so we did that and realized but i can't afford the equipment that's going to allow me to make that music so what do i do but he's a guy that doesn't make excuses so he goes to i think it was like sam ash or something and there was a manual on this one piece of equipment that he felt he could jerry-rig back at his apartment and so he had to learn about how it worked how it used vibration and all this stuff so he literally sat and he said they're not going to kick you out for reading the manual so he goes in reads the manual cover to cover goes home builds this thing that for you know like a couple hundred bucks mimics the thing that was twenty five thousand dollars and with that they end up making the score and you know it goes on to sell 22 million albums wow. recorded in like the basement of his uncle's house or something just dead broke and you see that with Literally every person that we've ever brought on, you see that over and over and over. They hit some obstacle where everyone else stops, and they don't stop. And it's right. the fact that they don't stop. Like at Quest, we hit the obstacle that everyone before us hit, which is that the equipment that was commercially available couldn't make a product without liquid sugar. So everybody else then put as little liquid sugar as they could to get it to go through the machines, but they still put liquid sugar. We said, that doesn't make sense, and we engineered our own equipment. So it's like you make that fundamentally different choice because you've got the guts and the courage and the willingness to see it through and all the hard work and all that, that's what they all have in common.
Interesting. Uh, your goal is to be bigger than Disney. Would you then buy the Star Wars franchise back from Disney? That's interesting. So I'm more obsessed with the Matrix. Oh, right. um, yeah. I love Star I've Wars in, you, in a way. But yeah, Matrix Matrix is yeah. my jam. Promotes drug taking, blue pills, red pills. Yes, it does. And hey, man, <laughs> let me tell fact. you, if, if uh, drugs yeah. had that kind of... which Can we talk about microdosing? Let's like, talk do we about get crazy? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. All right, so I've never done it. Have you? Right. I have not, no. Okay, so no. we're not... we're not. Well, we could be first-time buddies, I guess, on this. Yeah, I'd be down. I'm super intrigued. You and are. So it's interesting because my audience is following me through this like hardcore anti-drug stance. So right. now I'm like, God, if it really like is as powerful as people say it is, like microdosing. I'm not talking about like, like going crazy. LSD or hallucinogenics like mushrooms. Yeah. Or... So what I've heard is um, DMT and psilocybin. Mm. Like those are the ones if you're going to microdose, get on those. MDMA if you're going to do something at full dose. Far out. So not done any of them because I'm MDMA, a chicken. Man. Wow. How would you how would you microdose MDMA? That's such and an I amazing thing. They may feeling. be pushing that one as a full dosage. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they did in the 90s. It was widely successful and gave us electronic dance music. Nice. Which is either good or bad, depending yeah, that's, on your that's opinion. That's a whole so, other question. Uh, so microdosing would be something you'd be intrigued in. Are there, are there yeah. other areas that are out of your comfort zone that you feel... Let's. I need to. I need to get better at this, or um, um, well, or I want to just try it and see what it's all about. Uh, this isn't what you're asking, but it's it's actually what I'm currently obsessed with, which is what is going to happen with modifying the brain because mm-hmm. it's coming and it's coming fast. Mm-hmm. So there are already people. Cochlear implants is a brain modification that's already happening. They're doing the same thing with vision, uh, and it won't be long before they're able to replace sections of decaying brain and people that have like Alzheimer's and stuff. So it's coming in. Certainly, if I don't die a tragically young death. Uh, it's coming in my lifetime, so I'm going to have to make a decision like how fast, because I will augment. There's no question. It's just a question of how soon. I don't want to be an early adopter. That freaks me out a little. Yeah. But hit me up on Gen 2, Gen 3, Yeah, yeah. and uh, I'm your guy. Yeah, the first iPhone was shit, too, wasn't it? Exactly. You know, so. um, cool. Uh, I, I haven't run out of questions. I feel we've run out of time, because it'll probably get pretty boring if we just keep talking. <laughs> uh, but... Um, you know, thanks a lot for um, for swinging by, dude. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun, and trust me, as an as somebody who does interviewing, I know how hard it is to take yeah. people new places. And yeah. you took me new places. This was so much fun. So thank you. Next time we'll do it with uh, LSD. Yeah, let's do it. Let's <laughs> get right. crazy. Awesome, man. All right, thanks. Thank you, Tom You You can listen to Impact Theory uh, wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. I listen to it on iTunes. I subscribe to it, in fact. And you should subscribe to it as well. Um, And you should subscribe to us. You can also check us out at redbulletin.com. It's the home to some amazing stories. Uh, It's also the home to the archive of this podcast. And, uh, you know, I think... That'll give you enough to uh, to digest until we meet again. See you next time. <laughs>